You guys all know that we love to promote new shows that are out there that we're excited about, that we're working on, that our friends are working on. And today we actually are going to preview three. You're going to hear one in a second called Rusty Hinges, and that's hosted by Lars. You heard him on our Hayden Clark episode. And then at the end of this episode, you're going to hear two more. One is Don't Talk to Strangers. It's a long form on the Oakland child murders, and it's by Nina instead of the Already Gone podcast. She has been a longtime friend of ours. And also you're going to hear one called True Crime Bull Stuff, but, you know, not stuff. It'll be at the very end, and that is a long form on Israel Keys, but also about how we interact with the true crime genre as a whole. So you will hear both of those at the end, but first, Rusty Hinges, and we would love if you guys could check out all three of these shows. It would really mean a lot to us. The world can be a mysterious place. It can also be a boring place, so let's focus on the mysterious. Rusty Hinges is a podcast that explores mysteries, hoaxes, natural phenomena, and weird history. Basically, anything that's a bit, well, hinky. Season 1 topics include the tale of Clarence Roberts, a man who died more than once. And then there is the maybe kidnapping of June Robles, the sun that danced in the sky over Portugal, and an unsolved murder on the high seas. Rusty Hinges is generally skeptical, but never dismissive. Well, (laughs) usually not dismissive. You can find Rusty Hinges on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. That's Rusty Hinges. R-U-S-T. You know what? I have faith in your spelling abilities, so go and subscribe to Rusty Hinges and maybe you'll solve a mystery. Probably not, but you know, you never know. In August 1999, the town of Dothan, Alabama was rocked when two popular teen girls from the city were found murdered 20 miles away in Ozark, Alabama, after never having shown up to a birthday party. Although police announced within weeks that they were close to solving the case, it's been 19 years and the murders of Tracy Hollett and J.B. Beasley remain unsolved. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me today is Allie. How are you, Allie? I am doing well. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you. Yeah, same to you. It is the holiday season, and I mean, we're getting ready to take a little bit of a break. We have a two-week break from releasing content. That's not the same as actually taking a break because we generally work in the background during those. But we have a lot of exciting things in store for 2019. Do you have anything, Allie, coming up in the new year? Uh, I think just the same things that you have coming up in the new year. More podcasting. Or similar. (laughs) Podcasting and hopefully some trips to the US. Yeah, that's really exciting. We are at two conventions slash festivals in 2019 so far. We have CrimeCon which is in June in New Orleans. So we will be packing our fans and hopefully just stay in the air conditioning. And then we also have the True Crime Podcast Festival, which is in Chicago in July. And I plan on being at both. And I know Allie's going to be at one, but, you know, it depends on day work schedules and kid schedules and stuff, I'm assuming. I will definitely be at one. Which one will be a surprise for everyone as well as myself? (laughs) And also for 2019, we are upping our Patreon again. We kind of actually already started this 
at the $1 and up level, you get most months, I don't want to promise every month, but most months there will be a short eight to 10 minute audio article that we are just taking turns. You'll hear from one of us. And those are just going to basically be cases that don't fit on the show that interest us that we just want to talk about for a little bit. So those will be at $1 and up. $2, you get that plus our documentary conversations every month. And then $5, you also get a bonus episode that are generally about 20 to 30 minutes long. So lots of content out on Patreon. If you want to subscribe there, it's patreon.com slash insightpod. And that's all of that in addition to the ad-free episodes that we post there three days before they come out to everyone else and the merchandise that is for the $10 and up patrons. Yeah, so we have a bunch of stuff out there that we are excited to give and just as a thank you for supporting the show and helping us keep it running. One of the things we're also looking to do in 2019 is to use more listener suggestions for our cases. We've always used them, but maybe not as heavily as we're looking at for 2019. So we're going to pick some cases that strike our fancy from ones you guys have recommended over the years, new ones that come in, And also, if we hear a case being suggested over and over and over again, we'll kind of bump it up in our priority list. So even if you assume we've already had a case suggested to us, sending it in makes it more likely that we'll get to it. Tonight's case was a suggestion from Kara from way, way back. And honestly, this suggestion's from so long ago that I don't even know if Kara's still listening to the show. Allie and I, we take our turns picking cases, and, you know, we really have a lot coming up that are from our listener suggestion list. And there's a thread in our Facebook group if you want to give us some new suggestions. So head over to our Facebook group from that. This case tonight is from Alabama, and I'm not actually sure if we've ever done a case from Alabama before. I can't remember doing one. This crime is a completely senseless crime that very well could have been completely random or opportunistic, which makes it all the more difficult for the perpetrators to ever be caught. But there is hope here because there is DNA. The two young women we're talking about were close friends Tracy Hollett and J.B. Beasley. They were both 17 years old. In fact, J.B. turned 17 the very day they went missing. Tracy grew up in Dothan, and Dothan is a city in southeast Alabama, so it's just about as close to Tallahassee, Florida, as it is to Montgomery, Alabama, to give you an idea of the geography. Tracy's father was a police officer in town, and in 1987, when Tracy was only four years old, he died by drowning while he was out fishing with friends. Her mother, Carol, remarried a man who would love Tracy as his own. Tracy soon became big sister to two brothers who she adored. She would take them for rides in her car. And I have kids with a wide age spread like this, and so I know that getting a ride with an older sibling really is special for little ones. Tracy was 17 and getting ready for her senior year at Northview High School. School was starting in just days. She was a good student and hoped to become a doctor one day, and her focus was 
going to be on helping those who were less fortunate and serve uh, medical missions to other countries. And she had already applied to Florida State University, which was her first choice school. J.B. Beasley wasn't born in Dotham, but moved there when she was just a toddler. And yes, her first name was actually the letters J.B., Her father named her after himself and his best friend. He was Hilton Beasley and his friend was J.B. Green. So he named his daughter J.B. Hilton Green Beasley. Her parents divorced when she was little and she had a number of sisters between her parents. She had four younger sisters at home with her mum and another sister on her dad's side. She was an All-American cheerleader in the 8th grade, but her real passion was dance. She started dancing when she was 6 or 7, and that was her focus. She hoped to go to college on a dance scholarship, and like Tracy, she was contemplating a career in the medical field. About nine months before the double murder, JB and her mother Cheryl got into a fight, Not something out of the ordinary for a 16-year-old and her mother, except on this occasion it turned physical. Both women reportedly had bruises and the state stepped in. There are also reports that there was some kind of custody battle happening at the same time between Cheryl and JB's stepfather. JB was taken into the foster care system while her family was ordered into counselling. In an interview with the Thursday Review, JB's younger sisters, who were now grown, they wanted to dispel the idea that JB was this out-of-control teen. Somehow that slipped into the narrative, and they say it's absolutely not true, that JB was smart, mature and kind. Cheryl wasn't happy with JB's foster care placement, But from the outside, it really actually looks like a pretty good place for her to land. Foster care is difficult for kids, aside from just the family separation. Sometimes they end up having to leave their school, or maybe they don't end up in a home with foster parents who can or will support their extracurriculars, like JB's dance schedule. And it often means moving in with strangers. So being able to eliminate any of these extra stressors is a blessing. In this case, JB was able to move in with her dance instructor. She didn't have to change high schools in her junior year. She didn't have to leave her dance studio, obviously. And she was able to live with somebody she already had a relationship with and was already bonded to. The dance instructor and her husband were not licensed foster parents. And I talked to a listener of ours who is a longtime friend of mine named Kyle. I've actually known her longer than I've known many of my children. And she's also a foster parent. I asked her about placement with non-licensed, non-related adults, and she told me about something I hadn't heard before. That's the concept of fictive kin. Kinship doesn't have to be literal, legal, or blood relation. It can be a teacher, a neighbor, or really anyone who has some type of relationship with a child. Even a casual relationship can be seen as adequate in some cases. This would be seen as preferable to a stranger placement. Generally speaking, the people who take in a foster child before being licensed in a kinship placement like this are supposed to go through the licensing process. Letting them have guardianship early just helps get the child placed in a home while the rest is being sorted out. 
Non-licensed foster parents do not get the foster care stipend until they become licensed, which is both a motivation for them to complete the classes, but it also helps save the state money in the meantime. This really can be a small win in a situation that is full of loss. There are cons to this in certain cases, but we won't get into those now because they don't apply in JB's case. But like we said, JB's mother Cheryl was not a fan of this placement and it will come up again later. JB was an incoming senior at Northview High School, just like Tracy, and they were very close friends. JB and Tracy were both well-liked. They were energetic young women who were ready for their last year in high school. July 31st, 1999 was JB's 17th birthday, and the women were headed out to a party that night. Tracy had to work at a department store until a bit after nine. She went home to get ready and wait for JB to pick her up at around 10 o'clock. The party was a birthday party that one of JB's friends from dance was throwing for her. Her friend lived just 10 miles north of Dotham, but it was a rural area and JB had directions on how to get there. So I'd have to assume that she hadn't been there before or at least not often. The directions were confusing and it was night, so the teens got lost. You'll often see this party called a, quote, field party, and those are parties held in the middle of a field where underage drinking generally happens. By going to a remote area, they're less likely to get the police called on them, basically. It's pretty typical for high schoolers in areas with enough farmland around to do this in. But Tracy's mother said it actually wasn't a field party, and that is how it was reported from the earliest newspaper articles, but she said it was a planned birthday party for JB at her friend's home, and Tracy wasn't really into partying like that. Her nickname with friends was often DD, as in designated driver, because she never really drank at parties. Regardless of what type of party this was, Neither girl planned to stay at the party for long. Tracy wasn't in the mood to go. She was pretty tired. She had worked all day. And JB was only going because it was literally her birthday party. She actually wasn't too keen on it either. They left a little after 10 p.m., but they had to be back to Tracy's by her 11.30 curfew. It was about a 10, 15-minute drive, so they basically were looking at putting in an hour at the party. The plan was for JB to go home with Tracy, spend the night, and then the girls would go to church with Tracy's family in the morning. After church, JB was going to her little sister's birthday party. So around 10.30 p.m., JB pulled over at a gas station in Headland, and they called a friend. The general assumption is that they called the party because they couldn't figure out the directions, but I've not seen where this was confirmed that that's definitely where they called and the reason. This 10-minute drive had taken nearly 30, so I'm imagining that they actually drove around a bit before realizing they were lost and deciding to call. They got back on the road shortly after that and were next heard from in Ozark, Alabama. This is way, way from where they wanted to be. They were in Headland and had to be somewhat closer to their destination, but ended up 30 minutes away. They were there around 11.30, so it took them an hour to make it 30 minutes. 
My best guess is that, again, they were driving around trying to figure out where they were. They probably turned around a few times. There are long stretches of farmland and lots without any streetlights, so I think it's even possible they thought they were headed home when they arrived in Ozark. They had to have realised they were hopelessly lost at this point. Ozark was a good 35-minute drive from Dotham, so they pulled into a gas station just after 11.30pm. Now, this place had closed a half an hour earlier, but there was a payphone outside the convenience store portion of the gas station. While one of the girls did have a cell phone, it had no service that night, so the payphone had to do. While they were there, two women, a mother and a daughter, showed up. They had gone over to buy a soda and they didn't realise the place had closed already. But the girls were thankful that they did show up. They were able to get directions back to the US Highway 231, which would take them back home. Now, the women would later say the girls looked fine, that they were just lost, and JB's car was in good shape and clean. While JB got the directions, Tracy called home from a payphone. She was already a few minutes late for curfew, and she knew she wouldn't be at home for at least half an hour. So she called her mum and told her mum, Carol, that she knew she was late already, but they had gotten lost and would be home in about a half an hour or so. This phone call would be a bit of a gift for Carol, given what was to come. The last thing she and Tracy said to each other was, I love you. Carol, who had worked a double shift that day, had barely gotten home about 10 or 15 minutes before this phone call. Had she gotten home a little late or had Tracy called a little earlier, she may have missed this one last conversation and that one last I love you. And this is a good place to take a quick break for a word from a sponsor. Our sponsors support us, and so we appreciate you guys supporting them. What would it look like if we all listened more? Listening to audiobooks motivates us, inspires us, and even brings us closer together. And there's no better place to listen than Audible, because now Audible members get even more. Exclusive audio fitness programs, audiobooks, Audible Originals, and more. Audible has the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet. And now with Audible Originals, the selection has gotten even more custom with content made for members. If I had to recommend any audiobook to our audience, I'm going to recommend The Foundling, the true story of a kidnapping, a family secret, and my search for the real me by Paul Joseph Franzak. I loved this book. It is one of my absolute favorite true crime books because it's so much more than just true crime. So every month, Audible members get one credit good for any audiobook that you choose. And then you get two Audible originals from a changing selection, and you're not going to get those anywhere else. And I have to put a quick plug in here for Jingle Bell Pop. Go listen. It's fantastic. Audible members are also going to get access to audio, fitness, and health workouts that were created exclusively for Audible. Plus, your books are yours to keep. With Audible, you can go back and re-listen at any time, even if you cancel your membership. And if you didn't like your audiobook, exchange it, no questions asked. Start your 30-day trial and your first audiobook is free. Go to audible.com slash insight. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash I-N-S-I-G-H-T. 
audible.com slash insight. You can also text code insight to 500-500. That's texting insight to 500-500. You can do it with audiobooks. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. I've been a freelance graphic designer for about four years now. And when you become a freelancer, you learn very quickly that you have to represent your work online. There's no better way to show potential clients what you can do than through your own website, which is why I use Squarespace. They make it really easy to create a beautiful online portfolio with their customizable templates and settings. My website lets people contact me directly, which gives me peace of mind knowing that no one's questions or proposals are slipping through the cracks. Plus, Squarespace sites look great on every device, which is helpful if I want to pull up my work on my phone for a potential new client. Check it out at squarespace.com freelance for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code freelance to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com freelance and use offer code freelance. So the woman at the gas station with her daughter, they left before JB and Tracy, but they saw them pull out and turn towards the highway as directed. The girls had a few miles to drive to get to the highway, but they were going in the right direction, so all seemed fine. After Carol had hung up with Tracy, she went to bed. She woke up at 4.45 and went to check to make sure the girls were in the house and okay, but instead she was in immediate panic. They weren't there. Tracy rarely missed her curfew, and she called when she would, like she had already done. So Carol's first thought was that the girls were in an accident, and they had gotten in an accident on their way back from Ozark. So she woke her husband up, and he drove to Ozark, thinking that maybe he would see the car on the side of the road or see what happened to the girls. Meanwhile, Carol called all the hospitals she could think of, all the police departments in the area, to ask about any car accidents that had happened overnight. So then we're at 8 a.m. on August 1st, and there was no word from the girls the police departments hadn't heard anything. The hospitals didn't have anything. So Tracy's parents went and reported them missing. And it was about that same time that a police officer in Ozark saw a black Mazda 929 parked on the side of the road about a mile from where that last phone call was made in Ozark. When he ran the plates, it came back as registered to someone in Dothan. So he called the police department there. They had just taken the missing persons report from Tracy's parents, so it was quickly linked to the girl's disappearance since this was J.B.'s car and the car that Carol told the police the girls had been traveling in. Now, a little bit about where the car was found. Herring Road is often described as tree-lined, but I would say it's more like a little road cutting through a small forest. Saying tree-lined sounds like just a few trees, but the trees were dense in this area. The road is narrow and locals say that it's pitch black at night. There are no houses on this stretch where the car was. It is an odd road when you zoom out a bit to the surrounding area and it definitely makes me think the person who put the car there knew the area and knew Herring Road was one of the most isolated spots around. The only thing initially odd about the car was that the driver's side window was partially rolled down and JB's driver's license was on the dashboard. 
Now, that sounds to me like she was being pulled over by a police officer or someone she thought was a police officer, because why else would she have gotten her licence out? I can think of a million reasons to roll your window down a bit, but I've never put my driver's licence on the dash. It stays in my wallet when I'm driving. The car wasn't damaged, so it hadn't been forced off the road. It was muddy, though, and that's significant because the women who saw the girls at the gas station said that the car was really clean. The tank was near on empty, but not completely empty, so they hadn't run out of gas. The thing is, JB had filled up the day before, and even getting lost for a little bit, it is odd that the tank was so low. Aside from a police officer, or more likely a fake police officer, the girls may have stopped or at least slowed down if there was someone who had an accident. Remember, both of them had an interest in becoming doctors. Maybe if they thought someone was hurt, they'd jump in to help but that doesn't really explain JB's license being out. Also in the car, they found both of the women's purses, but they couldn't find the car keys. And they ruled out robbery almost immediately since the keys were the only thing taken and there were items of value. Their credit cards, cash, all of that was left behind. The keys were on a keychain that had white blocks with black letters that spelled out hard to get with the two being the number two. But that was the only thing other than the girls that was missing. There was no damage to the car, obvious signs of blood in the car. So the initial officer didn't have any reason to suspect that he was sitting on a crime scene. The thought in the morning hours was that they were likely just watching the car of two teens who were out without having called their parents. Though, of course, there was some concern that they didn't bring any of their items with them. Without a sign of something being wrong with the car, the police honestly couldn't do much. It seems online and in forums, I read a lot of criticism of the police for not searching the car immediately, but they can't just search a car without probable cause. And JB has a constitutional right to privacy where her car cannot be searched without probable cause. The Dothan police were initially taking lead on this since that's where the girls were from. So they actually planned to have the car towed back to Dothan. But six more hours passed without any word from Tracy or JB and the car was still parked on Herring Road. It sounds from the reporting like they were initially going to wait on a locksmith to get the trunk open when one of the officers noticed the trunk release inside the car. So at this point with the six hours going by, They must have felt they had probable cause. Now, it seems odd to me that they wouldn't have at least found the trunk release first or easily, but I went ahead and looked up this particular car, and the release is in a weird spot. So you know that door pocket on the driver's side door? The release is inside that pocket. So if they had the door wide open and we're looking near the driver's seat floor, which is where every car I've ever owned has had the trunk release, then I can see why they would have missed it. People read police misconduct or obstruction into sitting on the car for six hours, but people have the constitutional right in the US against unreasonable search and seizure, and that includes JB's car, at least until a time when police felt they could justify the search. And sadly, this trunk pop revealed the outcome that we never want in a missing persons case. Both girls' bodies were in the trunk, side by side. 
They had each been shot execution style at close range and it was determined they were likely in the trunk when they were shot. A 9mm shell casing was found on Tracy's leg. Both girls were completely dressed and the initial autopsy did not show signs of rape. However, JB did have traces of semen on her undergarments and on her skin. Investigators have a DNA profile from this and believe it is linked to their murderer. We've said it before that not all sexual assaults involve penetration and that looks like that was the case here. This could have been a lust killing. It was reported earlier on that a large amount of evidence was found at the scene and we know there was a palm print found on the trunk of the car that they've been unable to match. We don't know a lot more than that about the scene but with a palm print and the DNA this case seems so solvable even though it is very well could have been a stranger abduction and murder. Early on, the mayor of Dothan told the media that the victims were wet from the waist down and said it was almost as though they had been standing in a pond, yet their shirts were dry. Later on, the chief police in Ozark, who was lead on the case, said that this information was not accurate. One of the girls had wet feet, Tracy had muddy shoes and briar thorns on her pants, and JB also had muddy shoes. Other reports have said that their pants were damp below the knee, but more like if they were made to kneel on the damp ground versus being in a pond. But it's also possible that they had walked through tall, dewy grass. So this is a huge difference in the interpretation of the evidence. Soaked as though they'd been in a pond or just having muddy shoes and anywhere in between, but this illustrates why investigators try to only clear one person to speak to the press. They can control the information that's going out and make sure that it was cleared for release. It helps keep the confusion to a minimum. It was initially believed and reported in the newspaper that the girls had made it to the party and got lost on their way home. But after investigators spent a week or two interviewing everyone who was at the party, they realized not a single person saw either girl there. And JB's absence was rather notable since it was her birthday party. The girls had definitely gotten lost on their way there. Newspaper reports in the days, months, and years after this happened repeat that the young women were killed while in the trunk. But later summaries on the case say that the women were killed and then put into the trunk. So while the latter actually makes more sense to me, the reporting done by journalists who spoke with the police seems to likely be more reliable on the whole. So I lean toward believing that there were signs that they were killed while they were in the trunk. We have one last break for a word from a sponsor. We're happy to welcome back Third Love Bras. When life gets busy, the last thing I want is another errand to run. And that's one of the things I love about the Third Love Bra. You can skip the trip. Find your fit in 60 seconds with Third Love's online fit finder 
order and try the bra on at home with no more awkward fitting room experiences. Over 10 million women have taken this quiz to date. It takes less than a minute to complete and it asks questions that will really narrow down your size and get you that perfect fit. Third Love helps you identify your breast size and shape and find styles that fit your body because they use millions of real women's measurements and Third Love is designing their bras with that in mind. So both breast size and shape. You're going to get an impeccable fit and an incredible feel. I have been home for several hours before I realize I'm still wearing my bra and that only happens with Third Love bras. That is how incredible this bra is. The fit and the feel, it is hands down the most comfortable bra you will own. Tagless labels, no itching, straps aren't slipping, the fabrics are very smoothing and they're soft, and there is a 100% fit guaranteed. Third Love's team of expert fit stylists are dedicated to helping you find this perfect fit. So if you don't love their product, returns and exchanges are free and easy. Third Love knows that there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering our listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash site, S-I-G-H-T, to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash site for 15% off today. Police believe the actual shooting happened elsewhere and the car was then driven to Herring Road with the bodies in the trunk. This was a belief from early on in the investigation and it's not clear why, but we can assume it was blood evidence found near or around the car or rather in this case, blood evidence that wasn't found near or around the car. This belief the murders happened elsewhere and then the car driven to Herring Road as a dumping spot was bolstered in March of 2000 when an ear witness came forward. Now, she did not come forward sooner because she didn't want to get involved in the investigation. My guess is it's because she lived on the outskirts of a small town and she was probably afraid. But she did contact police to let them know that shortly after midnight, the night the girls were killed, she heard screams followed by two gunshots. Where she was located when she heard the screams and shots was south of Ozark near Highway 123. This would give a little more weight to those who think the girls did make it out to the highway before the killer or killers made contact with them. If they took 231 South, they would have intersected with Highway 123 on the south side of Ozark. So this does fit if the girls had pulled over for whatever reason on the highway and then their killer took them from that spot. There was that 9mm shell casing found in the trunk with the girls and a 9mm bullet found near where the screams were heard, but the brands didn't match. This wasn't the only thing found, but any other evidence is being kept under wraps by the investigators. Mud samples were also taken, since we know that JB's car had been in a muddy area after they were last seen, and the girls had muddy shoes on. We don't know if they matched the samples, though. Support for this podcast comes from NBC. Last fall on Manifest, the disappearance of Flight 828 became TV's biggest mystery. Where did the passengers go for five and a half years? Why had none of them aged a day? Monday, January 6th, last year's number one new drama returns with a mind-blowing new season. The passengers of 828 have delayed their death, but time is running out. Can they solve the mystery and also save the passengers? 
Get up to speed for the amazing new season of Manifest with Manifest, the official podcast. Your deep dive into all things Manifest. Show creator Jeff Rake and his team of writers have the answers to the biggest questions from season one, plus behind-the-scenes intel on what's to come. Check out Manifest, the official podcast. Listen or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't miss the return of Manifest, Monday, January 6th on NBC. On August 12, 1999, the police announced they were close to naming a suspect based on a tip that came in. And that made a lot of people in the area breathe a sigh of relief. This case was going to be solved within a month. But here we are, getting ready to ring in 2019, and it's still unsolved. And we don't know what this tip was, and it clearly didn't lead to a resolution. The next reporting we see is on August 18th, announcing that the FBI was sending the Behavioral Science Unit to the area to form a profile. The entirety of the profile has not been released, but investigators did say that it was too vague to be terribly helpful. The killer was a young man and likely a loner, and that's about it. There was security footage at the gas station in Ozark where they made the phone call to Tracy's mother. It's not clear if it was a camera that took video or one of those older ones that took stills every few seconds. Whatever it was, it wasn't great quality. Grainy is a good way to describe it. Actually, I'm going to say grainy is a generous way to describe it. But the women are seen there. And everything occurs the way the woman who had given them the directions said it had happened. Except there was one thing. There was a third vehicle there. On the footage, authorities can see a pickup truck that is often described as white. But due to the angle, the lighting, and the CCTV quality, it could really be any light color. It appears to be either a Toyota or a Nissan. Even though the gas station was closed... This truck was parked at a pump, and the driver never got out. And it left the gas station shortly before the women did. The license plate, any identifying features of the truck, the driver's face, none of that was visible or discernible. Authorities wanted the driver to come forward in the event that he or she saw something, but no one ever did. The driver of this truck could be a witness, but he also could be a suspect. It wouldn't have been hard to tell that the women were getting directions. If you have ever seen someone giving directions, there is a lot of pointing and gesturing of the directions. Without hearing anything, he could have ascertained that they were likely lost and which direction they would be headed after they left. Without the truck or driver being identified and ruled out, we have to leave this as an open lead. There were a few other leads that were pursued that made it into the reporting. And the most promising one was when a man named Johnny Barentine sat down on September 1st for a four-hour interview with police. Now, his story changes multiple times, but his original one was that he told his wife that he left his Ozark area home on July 31st at 11.30 at night. He was supposed to go to the store to get some milk for his toddler son. This is the same time the girls were at the gas station, but he didn't return home for an hour and a half and came home agitated. He first told her that his car had been hit by a black truck near Herring Avenue. There was no real explanation for where he was in that hour and a half. 
As the murders made the news, he started telling friends that he might know who did it, and a friend of his pointed out something that escaped Johnny's attention, and that was the reward. If his information was good, he stood to collect thousands of dollars in reward money. So Johnny set up a meeting with the police. Johnny's interview was conducted on September 1st and videotaped. Videotaped statements are really important, so investigators and attorneys can go back later and review them, which ended up having to happen here. What we learned from Johnny's interview is that either he knew a lot about the murders or he knew next to nothing and was doing a tap dance for the reward money. His story jumped around and it contradicted itself, but he did have details. His original story was much like what he told his wife, black truck near Herring Avenue. But then he changed it and he said that he had actually picked up the killer. The killer was a, quote, tattooed man who was a complete stranger to him. It's unclear why he picked up a total stranger at 1130 at night while on a quick grocery store run. We don't have a transcript or access to the video of the interviews, so we can't get these details. We can only go by what has been covered in the media. But according to this news story, they stopped at the gas station. The man got into the car with the girls and Johnny followed them to Herring Avenue. The man then shot the girls, got back into his car, and they left the scene. Then he changed his story again and said that the tattooed man actually wasn't a stranger. He was his neighbor. In all, Johnny told six fundamentally different stories. Johnny did have some specifics that made investigators think he was involved. Like he said, one of the girls ran, which is believed to be a possible cause of the mud and the briars on Tracy's shoes and jeans. He said they fought back, which would explain some of the scratches they had on them. It's been pointed out that he had the number of shots correct, though he could have gotten that from the newspaper. As early as August 3rd, as far as I could tell in the newspaper archives, it was being reported that they were each shot once. And the mud was also reported pretty early on, and so were the injuries. It's unclear what information Johnny had that was outside of the media reporting that made his admission seem valid. I've seen it repeated in online forums that he identified correctly the clothing the women were wearing that night, but I've not been able to track down the original source of that information. I've only ever seen that reported on online forums like Reddit and Web Sleuths, but I've never seen it reported on a reliable news media source. Yeah, I did a huge archive search and couldn't find it. I read pretty much every article I could find on this case. So if you are someone who posts on Reddit, web sleuth forums like that, putting up sources, that would be helpful. Yeah, you know, just a little suggestion there for those of us who are wondering where this information is coming from. There is something that stood out to investigators as well, though, that Johnny lived near the site where the car was left. He lived less than a mile away. And that is a very strong belief with the investigation was that the killer was someone local, that it was someone who could flee on foot. And here's Johnny voluntarily putting himself at the crime scene. And he did, in his original story to his wife, he still put himself at the crime scene saying that he was hit on Herring Road. Right. Every one of Johnny's stories puts him at the crime scene. But any confession needs to be corroborated by the evidence, and this one fell short of that. The neighbour Johnny claimed was the killer had an alibi, 
Johnny said the murder happened where the car was left, and that's not consistent with the evidence. He also said the men got into the car with the girls at the gas station. The women who gave JB the directions left before them, but saw them pull out of the gas station and head towards the highway. So they couldn't have left much ahead of them, and they said nothing of seeing a man get into the car with the girls. Johnny was arrested the same day he gave his multiple stories of what he knew, though he recanted his stories very quickly. He said he was just trying to get the reward. Investigators felt his information made it clear that he was there, but didn't buy his story about being just a witness. They did agree he was telling a story to collect a reward, but felt he had too much information to not be involved. His story of being a witness didn't make sense to them. It looked to them like Johnny was the perpetrator of the crime and tried to implicate someone else to get the reward money. Johnny's attorney reviewed the videotaped statement and he felt that during the questioning, the police inadvertently gave Johnny the information to fill in the blanks. That rather than just questioning him, they accused him, and in doing so, they gave him the information for his ever-changing stories that made it sound like he truly knew something, when in reality, he may not. And we're also talking about someone who may have been more suggestible than your average 20-something. After spending his school career in special education, Johnny dropped out in the eighth grade, and for those not in the U.S., Most kids start the eighth grade at the age of 13, so that's quite young to drop out of school. We're talking about someone with learning disabilities who was also undereducated. A jailhouse informant came forward with a statement that Johnny had confessed while locked up after his arrest, but I think by now we all know my opinion on highly incentivized witnesses like this. Like if our show used sound effects, you'd hear a toilet flushing right now. In November, the DNA test was complete and the semen found did not match Johnny. In mid-December, he was released from jail on bond. He had previously been denied bond, but with the one piece of forensic evidence not linking to him, he was released. Then in January 2000, the grand jury declined to indict at all after seeing all of the evidence and the charges against him were dropped. For a lot of people, he is still a suspicious character in this. As for the DNA not matching, it doesn't necessarily exclude someone from being part of this crime. If there were two people involved, only one DNA profile was found. But Johnny says he was making all of it up. He went to the store for milk, and then he went home. There was no truck that hit him or almost hit him. There was no tattooed man. I mean, I can see making up a story for the police for the reward, But he had told the story before that, so why would he have made up a story about having knowledge of the crime that he told his wife and friends? And he supposedly told his wife this before anyone even knew there was a crime. But something that does stick out to me and I cannot shake is why did he come home agitated then? Where was he for an hour and a half? I know that... And if I send my partner out to get some milk and bread, it does take him longer than it would take me. But an hour and a half longer, it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I personally suspect that he did see something that night when he went out to get the milk. It may just have been a black truck speeding away. I'm not sure he knew who did it, just that he saw something possibly connected. He tried not to get involved, but then he heard about the reward and decided to try for it. 
He was answering leading questions, so he's trying to fill in these blanks to make it sound like he knew more than he did, but he just did this for the sake of the reward. Then when he got arrested, he decided to just deny everything and try to get out from under it. I mean, if he does know something, it's so unlikely he'll ever cooperate with the police seeing where it landed him last time. I'm like you. I do believe that he saw something that night. Maybe he was more than just a witness, or maybe it was someone that he knew. I think that given Johnny's background, he was the perfect scapegoat here. But given what we know now, I really don't think he's responsible for the actual murders. That's where I fall as well. Now, then there are two leads that came out of Jones County and Mississippi. They aren't connected to each other aside from coincidence. The first was a man from Mississippi who was staying with family in Ozark in the summer of 1999, and he had been arrested for possession of drug paraphernalia. His name has never been released. Two days after the murders, he left Ozark and went back to Jones County, Mississippi, without tying up the loose ends of that possession charge. His name came up a few times during the investigation into the murders, so when he was picked up in Jones County on the warrant from Ozark for the possession charge, they questioned him about the murders and obtained a DNA sample. Now, it didn't match and nothing else connected him to the case. The second lead from Jones County was two murders of teen girls similar to Tracy and JB's deaths and it occurred the day after the man had been arrested, so he wasn't never a suspect in that murder. He had the perfect alibi of already being in jail. The victims were 19-year-old Amanda Wellborn and 18-year-old Kelsey Billock. They were found dead on the side of a rural road. They had been riding around in the car the night of their murders. They were each shot once at close range. There are many similar themes here between this and Tracy and JB's murders. Investigators must have thought there was a possibility that Tracy and JB were the victims of a serial killer because they had reached out to other law enforcement agencies about the case and to know any similar cases. That's when this one was flagged. It happened on February 26, 2000, so almost six months after Tracy and JB were killed. The type of gun used was different, and the two men eventually convicted in these murders, they knew the victims. They were even driving around with them that day. Authorities in Alabama did run the DNA just to be sure, and it didn't match. In all, they've DNA tested about 100 men, and none of them matched the semen found. There was another man in the area at the time of the murders, but left just days after. He was from Michigan, and he is also unnamed, so he's generally just known as the man from Michigan. He was in Ozark, near where the car was found. He was at a party, but he had a chunk of time that he lacks an alibi for, and we're talking three or four hours. So honestly, that's plenty of time to leave a party, commit the crime, and then get back to the party. We don't know what else made him a suspect or put him on anyone's radars except for there being a vague reference to statements he may have made that drew suspicion. But that's all we have. So we don't know if he has been DNA tested. No, I'm going to assume he has, but I don't know for sure. And then on April 30, 2002, a 42-year-old woman named Melva Sue Johnston went missing. Melva worked as a supervisor for a commercial cleaning company. 
The company used inmates who were on work release and a man named Eugene Utsi was working in that program. The same time Melba went missing, so did Eugene. A warrant was issued for his arrest because he escaped from the work release program and he was found about a week later. Eugene confessed that he killed Melva so he could steal her car and escape. He told police where they could find her body. After dumping her remains in Montgomery, he drove to Ozark where he dumped her car. When he told them where the car could be found, investigators immediately became suspicious. The car was off Herring Road, not far from where JB's car was found. But it's believed this is likely just a coincidence, and there seems to be a lot of coincidences in this case. But in this situation, it's the circumstances are quite a bit different and because Eugene's DNA didn't match. Okay, so the themes of the DNA keeps coming up and investigators have been leaning heavily on it to exclude suspects. But I'm not sure they are completely excluding those who don't match. If there were two men involved, they may just be holding off on prosecuting anyone until they find that match and they can tie an accomplice to that person. Or maybe there is evidence pointing decidedly towards only one killer and they are sure that this is his DNA. And again, with that DNA, we don't know why police are so sure it was part of the crime and not from a consensual act prior to JB being abducted and killed. If there is conclusive evidence on this, it's just one more thing that the investigators are keeping to themselves in this unsolved crime. Unlike other forensic evidence, semen can be dated to an extent, Barring low sperm count or a vasectomy, the amount and quality of the sperm in the sample can give an idea if sex was in the last several hours or even the past day or so. But the thing is with this case, the semen was found on clothing and skin. Once semen dries, the sperm die very quickly. So this kind of so-called dating of the deposit of the semen wouldn't work here. I'm very curious about the forensic determination that the DNA was definitely from the killer, but it's just not information we have. We're just going to have to be curious about it. We know the DNA has never been matched to anybody. This case has also been the source of a lot of rumors and gossip in the entire area. Investigators did not dismiss rumors as just rumors. They spent a lot of time and a lot of resources chasing down this gossip and rumors and trying to find the source and the root of it, even things that didn't seem very likely, they would look into it. They did not want to leave any stone unturned. One rumor was that the girls, while lost, had accidentally come on some illegal happenings. Possibly they witnessed a drug deal and that they honestly were just the victims of wrong place, wrong time. Another rumour that went around was that JB was dating a married police officer and threatened to tell his wife and that was the motive. But then in 2015, the drug conspiracy and police conspiracy merged together. JB's sister did what a lot of families with cold cases do. She talked to social media. She wanted to generate more attention and therefore more leads. An auxiliary police officer with the Ozark Police Department named Rena Crum came forward with a massive story of corruption and cover-up. 
This account was published on the Henry County Report, which was a blog run by a man named John Carroll. What Officer Crumb said happened is really disturbing. She said that JB had in her possession a series of cassette tapes. It's unclear how JB got them, though it's possible she was the one who made the tapes. There were secret tapings of conversations, and one of these conversations was between a prominent businessman and a federal judge. They were discussing the cocaine trade in the area as though they were involved with it, and also named a well-known politician as being involved in payouts. Another tape supposedly had the Ozark police chief in it, according to Officer Crum anyway. These tapes were needed for a court case that was happening on August 2nd, 1999. So Tracy and JB were likely killed a bit after midnight on August 1st. So we're talking just the next day these tapes were supposed to be delivered. According to the story, the Ozark police had motivation to go get and destroy these tapes, so a police officer was sent out to pull the women over and demand the tapes. The shooting was not meant to happen. The police officer was actually attempting to pistol whip JB when the gun discharged and he shot her instead. Then he had no choice but to kill Tracy to get rid of witnesses. The article does not say which court case the tapes were meant for, or even which court they were being entered into, state, which city it's in, if it was a federal court. So this makes it difficult, impossible, for us to even fact check this in any way. The article also claimed that an unnamed federal officer shared with them documents that backed some of this up, but that information wasn't in the article. The entire blog is no longer available, and the domain is now some law information website, but the article had been copied and pasted into forums enough that it's pretty easy to find. Rena Crum did name people from the Ozark Police Force as involved in either the crime or the cover-up, and in January 2016, two months after this article went up on the Henry County Report blog, she was sued by these men for defamation. John B. Carroll was included in the suit, as was another police officer. Additional accusations were made by Rena Crum that after she came forward, she got death threats and that someone even beat her up with a baseball bat. I cannot find the resolution of this case, and it is possible it's still going through litigation. But on the surface, this story does not make much sense. The women were not supposed to be in Ozark at any point that night. They were supposed to be over 20 miles away in Headland, Not only that, they were supposed to be home in Dotham by 11.30. We know they were killed after this because they were seen alive and well at the gas station at around 11.35. So a police officer was sent out to find and pull over JB's car in Ozark at a time when she planned to be in another city getting ready for bed. If the idea is that he just happened to stumble across them and pull them over to take advantage of the opportunity, well, this also falls flat. JB was allegedly submitting these tapes to the court on Monday morning. The police were cutting it pretty close on this cover-up. Why didn't they go find her earlier if it was so imperative to get these tapes? They just waited until they happened to see her in Ozark. That seems unlikely. Which also seems unlikely is why would JB just be carrying around these very important tapes with her to a party when 
She's so close to handing over this evidence. Wouldn't you think she'd be keeping them in a safe place? But I do see why people do suspect a police officer or more likely someone pretending to be a police officer being involved. As we've said earlier, JB's window was rolled down a bit and her driver's license was out, which are both things you would do if you get pulled over by a police officer. That much makes sense. But naming specific officers or having a detailed theory of a crime about these cassette tapes and a supposed court case isn't something we personally see any support for. This isn't the only civil suit in this case. Two years after the murders, JB's mother Cheryl filed a lawsuit against a number of people, alleging they were negligent in supervising JB. She named the dance instructor who was JB's guardian, also the Department of Human Resources. They were in charge of JB's custody and placement. She named a few specific employees of that department as well. And then she named JB's stepfather, Joseph Burgoon, who she had divorced before the murder. She said that JB's murder was the result of a lack of supervision and that the state shouldn't have placed JB in an unlicensed foster home. Now, we already spoke about why situations like this occur and are legally allowed and in some cases are seen as preferable. Cheryl also said that the state didn't set up proper rules and conditions for the home like the juvenile court had instructed them to do when JB was placed in that home. As to why her ex-husband Joseph was included, he apparently was one of the people who filed a petition with the court in support of JB's removal from Cheryl's home. He was also having visits with JB, even though as a step-parent, he didn't have a legal right to them. This access to visiting her, I don't know, made him responsible for her safety, I guess. I'm not entirely sure on that one. Most of the details are sealed. Since this is largely about a minor child in the foster care system, from my understanding, the case dragged on for years before Cheryl ultimately lost the case. In spite of an arrest, a grand jury and two civil cases for peripheral issues, there does not seem to be one suspect rising to the top over the others. We checked lists of serial killers active at the time and other murders that happened in Alabama shortly before or after, and it's hard to see any links. All it really did was make me rethink coming to America in 2019. But honestly, I really think the theory of someone pretending to be a police officer makes the most sense here. That other crazy theory with the tapes and the like seems exactly that crazy. But maybe a crooked police officer who did have murderous tendencies or someone pretending to be a police officer to get the girls to pull over and gain their trust, that makes a lot of sense in this case. And that's what I think happened exactly. I think someone pulled them over, either a police officer or someone pretending to be a police officer. It's hard to say what happened after that, obviously. And here we are at over 19 years since the murder. So the worry is always that the case will just never be solved. But as we've seen a lot lately, where there is DNA, there is hope. Cases much older than this one have been solved through DNA recently, I think 2018 has to have been some kind of record for that. And they don't have to test old evidence that might have not been stored properly. They were able to get the DNA profile right away because this case was in the late 90s. It's ready to be matched. So maybe this will be the next case for a forensic genealogist to solve. 
From January 1, 1976 through the end of March 1977, the Metro Detroit area was the site of nine child murders. Three of those cases are resolved, but the other six cases remain open, with most of these deaths attributed to the as-yet unidentified Oakland County child killer. Don't Talk to Strangers is a long-form podcast focused on this series of unresolved child murders. Join us as we explore the stories of these young victims, the impact on their families and the community, and what happened to the investigation into these crimes. Subscribe to Don't Talk to Strangers on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcatcher. In March of 2012, Israel Keyes was pulled over outside of Lufkin, Texas. And in that moment, hundreds of lives would be forever changed including mine. Join me on this strange, terrifying, and emotional journey as I attempt to find the missing, understand a killer, explore the impacts of crime, reconcile with those left behind, and subvert the genre of true crime. In the FBI files, they found images of over 40 missing persons on his computers. I think it's fair to say that Israel Keyes had a fetish about missing people, which is why he wanted to ensure that his victims didn't get found. True Crime Bullshit premieres December 6th on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Go to www.truecrimebullshit.com for more information.